Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Thank you. 
precept of nonviolence in body, speech, and mind, of recognizing that I am not separate from all that is. Ahimsa is non-killing, non, not peace, because it presupposes that there will be harm. There will be harm. But in recognizing that I am not separate from all that is, I must therefore vow not to live at the expense of other life in body, speech, and mind. To do so would be to live at the expense of myself, because there is no other life. And because there is no other life, in practicing ahimsa, I must welcome everything and push away nothing. Pushing away creates separation from that other, but we are not separate. We are instead empty of thingness, 
and thus interdependent on a relationship that is always changing. And because of that intangible, ungroundable change, what is right action changes too. This is a favorite poem of mine. It's called The Fall by Russell Edson. There was a man who found two leaves and came indoors holding them out, saying to his parents that he was a tree. To which they said, then go into the yard and do not grow in the living room as your roots may ruin the carpet. He said, I was fooling, I am not a tree, and he dropped his leaves. But his parents said, look, it is fall. This is sudden practice, the moment-to-moment -moment imperative of changing relationship, of turning a fall into autumn. There is therefore no one way to know ahimsa, to practice ahimsa, but this is not bad news. There are instead a myriad of ways to practice nonviolence, but you must be awake in each moment to see which appropriate, skillful, and effective way that is for that moment. Each moment has the infinite capacity for failure, and each moment has the infinite capacity for imaginative, creative non-harm. And all we need to do is find a single path to it. And because nonviolent moments can't be banked or earn interest at a high fixed rate, we must have infinite patience, which is impossible. And we must have infinite patience for that too. In upholding the precept of ahimsa, don't hurt anyone and be kind to yourself. Every moment. Every moment. by noise, and yet it can only be expressed with words or actions. I really started to notice this curious sublingual quality of honesty by reflecting on my weekly meetings with my partner. I found myself showing up with the same attitude every time. I would say to Rayanne, I really don't feel like talking this week. You go first. No, seriously, I've got nothing to say. And she would kindly oblige me, sharing her thoughts and feelings with me for 20 minutes and then it would be my turn, and I would reluctantly let a few sentences trickle out of my mouth, my gaze fixed on the timer in front of me, and before I knew it, 20 minutes had disappeared, and I would go into overtime, scrambling to tie up the loose ends of my thoughts. It became somewhat of a running <laughs> joke between us, a knowing smile spreading across Rayanne's face the moment I mentioned my lack of anything worthy to talk about. There was something so peculiar about the way my initial words belied the things inside of me that were evidently seeking expression. That such a sharp disconnect could exist between what I thought I felt and what was actually capable of coming out of my mouth when given the time and the space amazed me each and every time I noticed it happening. 
This phenomenon made me extremely self-conscious in my relationships with others, but especially in my relationship with myself. Communication itself already invites so much potential for misunderstanding, and now I not only have to worry about someone misinterpreting my words, but I have to worry about my words misrepresenting what's going on inside of me. So it turns out that the most difficult thing about honesty isn't necessarily finding ways to express it, but finding the honesty itself. I am concerned that true honesty is so often shrouded by habitual reactions and patterns of speech. I do think it's possible to locate honesty, but I often wonder what the point of all this self-inquiry is when it only seems to dangle an unattainable ideal that I have vowed to attain in front of me. Honesty is a dynamic process. It changes over time, over minutes and seconds, but honesty also means recognizing that there is no one single truth at any given moment. I'm not sure I've gotten any closer to finding the honesty within myself, but at least I'm starting to know where to look for it. When searching for honesty, it is especially helpful to respectfully and compassionately tell your many selves to be quiet. After that, you wait and see what comes up in the absence of noise. You wait and you listen, you listen and you wait, and eventually, with any luck, the incessant human need to verbalize will be replaced by a feeling, and when your actions and words spring forth from this feeling that is cultivated by sitting still and creating space, they will be infused with honesty. definitions of non-stealing, uh, one by Bodhidharma and one by Dogen. And the one by Bodhidharma says, your nature is subtle and mysterious. In the realm of the unattainable Dharma, not having thoughts of gaining is called the precept of not stealing. And the definition by Dogen says, the self and the things of the world are just as they are. The gate of freedom is open. And if you recall, we've looked at literal, compassionate, and koan levels of these two definitions. And uh, um, when we did it in class, I really was so lost. I did not know how to put it in words, like in three levels. And I am still confused. 
Um, but I think what I got from these two definitions is that they really gave me the sense of stillness and um, bearing witness of how things are uh, without being emotionally stirred inside. And that seems to be in contrast with greediness, which I think of it as um, not like having a sense of luck and creating, uh, constructing a need for something to compensate for, for that luck. And then so that contrast seems to be how I understand um, these two definitions right now. Um, and uh, in terms of greediness, um, we could think about greediness in relation to materials, space, time, knowledge, um, could be recognition or relationship or affection, love, um, could be in relation to our practice as well. And we've also talked about judging others and yourself um, expectation or attachment to outcome as a form of stealing. And um, I also noticed that the astea is quite close to the last precept, um, aparigraha, generosity. And um, I was wondering what the difference is and why they are separate. And to me, it seemed like um, that you need to be content, satisfied with what you have before be, you are able to be generous. And uh, it just seemed like a, like a prerequisite or you need to have this before you are able to practice a paragraph. Brahmacharya means to live like Brahma, the Hindu creator god, to take creative energy and apply it wisely in your life. Brahmacharya does not mean sex is sin or sex is dirty. It does not specify a relationship or sexual orientation. Instead, wise use of sexual energy is shaped by a deep commitment to ethics, applying to thought, word and action, both internally and externally. It is honest, not fueled by gain or the need for permanence or security, explored amongst willing participants, and above all, does not cause harm.
Parigraha. Generosity. Or there's several definitions for this um, particular yama. Not grasping or not accumulating more than you need. Is it enough? This was an odd preset for me because I missed this class. However, <laughs> it put me in the unique position of having to actually reach out to people to find out what happened, if I wanted to know what happened in the class. Um, which meant I had to rely on others, which isn't something that I'm actually very good at. Um, so I got to live generosity. Um, a word Michael likes to use a lot is interdependence. And this is what I really learned about this precept. Generosity is really easy to do when people are watching you. Generosity feels really good when you're doing it. But I think there's a twin to being generous, and that's receiving generosity. And that's a lot harder to do, to actually ask for help from people you casually know. I recently had a few problems that I thought I could take care of myself. And the problems kept escalating, and week after week, I would kind of talk myself out of asking for help. And I, you know, I was hoping the problem would just kind of go away, or by saying that I needed help, maybe it meant that I was weak and that I was incapable of solving, I'd be known as somebody who couldn't solve problems. Um, so, I eventually did go in and ask for help, and um, my problems, um, I followed through with the help, and I got much more than I could have ever expected. By letting go of this carefully constructed idea of who I thought I was and capable of doing, um, my life has become a lot more interesting, a lot more vibrant, and a lot richer. After that moment, it was almost as if it was a rebirthing, because if I thought I was that and wasn't, then what else is there that I've constructed that isn't? And it's the whole idea of just letting go made my life far more colorful. I think opening yourself to the generosity of others feeds the instinct to help and give, which feels pretty good. <clears throat> Thank you, all of you. Wow, I think I cried in each presentation. <laughs> um, We should have done that every week. <laughs> so thank you, Mike, for, for organizing. Maybe we don't have to have a ceremony. <laughs> After all. Um, so I just wanted to say again, because a few people uh, came in late, we have some guests today. So Andrea, Sarah, Barzin. Priya, 
and straight from the bed. <laughs> Aaron. <laughs> we would have come over and just carried you. <laughs> Chariot. <clears throat> I'm glad you weren't here for that that class because actually when we talked about generosity I never even thought to talk about receiving generosity that's a whole other lot I never even (laughs) I'll look into that (laughs) so uh, before I speak a couple things Uh, so everybody should have their papers Uh, Indra yours is sitting here and I guess this means that Colin's not here. So, is someone here Mary's partner? Mary Stacy's partner? Oh, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, can you tell Mary what we cover today? Um, who else is not here? Colin. Somebody Collins partner? If Sarah is. Oh. So who will talk to them? Can somebody tell them about what we cover today? Yeah. Mike? Who else is not here? Karina. Karina. I'll tell Karina. Ronit. Ronit won't be here for the ceremony. Um, so a few people, you know, didn't make it through to the end of the course for various reasons. Ronit, uh, Danny, Kate, who moved away. Um, who else? Someone started the course, was here the first day. Lee. Lee was here the first day, and she just, it was way too much for her first schedule. That's a pretty good attrition rate. Oh, and Jenna. Yeah. And Jenna also. So, um, good for you for hanging in there. It was dismal at times. <laughs> uh, I've handed you back your papers. Um, anyone who I asked to rewrite the paper, um, I've already talked to you. But um, the papers were amazing. And for most of you, I added a few critical comments, and that doesn't mean rewrite it, it doesn't mean you've done a bad job, or anything like that. It's just to offer you a way of, of, you know, maybe just rethinking some sentences or some comments. And usually the only thing that I picked at um, were cliches or places that were vague, where I thought, you know, you could define a term better or use a per... A lot of people got, use a personal example. just because that helps flesh out, you know, what it is that we're, we're exploring. Um, but for those of you who have a radar for, you know, uh, being marked, you know, those comments are not to mark you. Okay? <laughs> They're just to encourage you. Is that clear? Okay, good. And you don't have to leave apples at the front or anything. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to say a few words and then we're going to jump into uh, the ceremony. Um, so in the Buddhist tradition it's said that the practice has two wings Uh, one wing is compassion 
and one wing is wisdom. And it's said that uh, these are the two wings that keep the practice flying along. Um, And one of the things the precepts really offer are ways of um, refining and uh, constructing both those wings. Um, You can reach compassion by studying your actions and the effect of your actions. And you can also reach the wisdom wing through your actions and studying your actions. Um, And also through stillness. And then another level that brings together the compassion and wisdom wings is um, the transcendent level. And I think for those of you who've been here on Tuesdays, we've been studying the Lotus Sutra. And the Lotus Sutra is really bringing the transcendent level, which is the way that we think the world is just this world, and our actions are just these actions. And the teachings of the Lotus Sutra remind us that everything is interconnected, even through space and time and other sentient beings, in ways that you can only barely imagine. And this is meant to really prop up the uh, mysterious koan level of the precepts that we've explored and that all of you just articulated uh, so clearly. Um, The example that I talked about on Tuesday night, which I think is really uh, the heart of the koan level of ethics, is the story of Mahakashyapa, so Mahakashyapa was uh, an early disciple of the Buddha. Uh, sorry, a disciple of the Buddha, not early. Um, and when the Buddha died, he's the person who is famous for convening the first council that comes together to begin to codify and remember what the Buddha taught. Um, maybe this was one of the first acts of generosity uh, after the Buddha died. And in the Buddha's lifetime, the story of Mahakashyapa is that the Buddha was asked by the Sangha to give a teaching on the interdependent reality that we all live in. And so the Buddha reached for a flower like this. But this is not, this is a flower at this time of year, I guess. And he held up the flower like this. And as he was looking at the flower, he started smiling. I'm not a fully enlightened Buddha, so I can't pull this off. But you, you can you know, imagine the scene. And everybody looked at the flower and was bewildered. Except Mahakashyapa. He was sitting on the other side of the room, and he looked at the flower in silence with the Buddha, and he smiled. And the Buddha looked around and thought to himself, nobody understood the teaching, except Mahakashyapa, who was sitting there with the Buddha, smiling at the flower in silence. So the Buddha said, Mahakashyapa understands, and he receives the transmission of the whole of the Dharma, in other words, all of his teachings, outside of the scriptures. And that's why nowadays in Zen practice it said, you know, Zen Buddhism is the teaching outside the scriptures. Or it's often called mind-to-mind transmission. 
And this is the kind of koan level of the precepts, is that we can talk about the literal level. Do you remember the three levels? So the literal level of ethics. Don't kill. Yeah? And then the compassionate level. How do you actually act that out in compassion with others? And usually the compassionate level is about when to break the literal level of the precepts. And the third level of the precepts is to wake you up to the mystery of life, which we call the koan level. Or I would say you could also call the bodhisattva level. And Mahakashipa, he understood the koan level. The Buddha picks up a flower to teach about the interdependence of all things, and Mahakashipa gets it. So, because there are three levels, what this means is the precepts, and this is responding to your comment about graduating, um, that the precepts are not a matter of ordinary ethics. It's not the same as do this and don't do that. Or now you have permission to sometimes do this and not doing those other things. Um... Behind the precepts is the koan level, which is this deep, mysterious, interdependent, complex reality, symbolized by the Avatamsaka Sutra's parasol. Was everybody here for that talk? Um, In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Buddha needs to also articulate. This is another... Do you notice how the Buddha's descriptions of interdependence in Mahayana Buddhism are all teachings in silence? The Buddha wants to give a talk. The Sangha arrives. The Buddha pulls out a mirrored parasol, which is filled with jewels. And every jewel in the parasol reflects every other jewel. And not only that, every person who looks into the parasol sees him or herself reflected within that interdependent matrix. And the Buddha doesn't say a word. (laughs) Um... So we are going to undertake a ceremony. And I really want to stress that this ceremony is not just about the literal level of precepts. Like somehow you've mastered nonviolence <laughs> or not. Um, it's about committing to a lot more than a mode of conduct. It's about committing to the nuances and the transcendent quality of ethics, which is looking at your life through a prism, a prism of nonviolence, a prism of honesty, and so on down the line, to really open up to this mysterious, deep interconnectedness of all things. So the precept, as I said, the precept ceremony is a beginning. It's not really a graduation. So if you don't think you can graduate, then you can begin. And in receiving the precepts, what you're actually admitting to is the truth about your life. Um, That you are a Buddha. And if this course does anything, it's making you into a Buddha that you already have been but haven't seen while you were trying to be a Buddha. 
How does it do this? It presses on all of us the power of our actions. The subtle actions of being able to sit or not sit still. And the gross action of speaking kindly or not. Of seeing clearly or not. So in a way, meditation is only about precepts. Meditation maybe is the deepest practice of precepts. And the precepts are an activity of a Buddha. So if you are living your life in awareness of the five precepts, then you are a Buddha. According to the Center of Gravity Sutra, if you live with an understanding of the precepts, you are a Buddha. And again, three levels. The literal level. Don't kill. Don't even disrespect yourself. The compassionate level. To live with and for others. Compassionate level of ethics is to live with and for others and to wake up with and for others and to benefit others even if you need to break a precept on the literal level. Even if you have to lie or you have to steal to benefit others, this is okay in the bodhisattva level of the precepts, in the compassionate level of the precepts. And last, the koan level, And when you graduate, instead of it being a koan level, it becomes a Buddha level. It becomes your level. Which is that it's impossible to keep the precepts. The Buddha level, and this ceremony, which is at the Buddha level, means it is impossible to maintain the precepts. Good luck. No matter what you do, you will always take life no matter what you do. To be a vegan, you have to kill beings. And yet, you have to take a step. You have to feed yourself. When the Buddha couldn't feed himself, he used to touch his navel to see whether he could touch his spine. That's how... uh, um, close to the edge he was from not eating so that he wouldn't take life until he realized that this was a path that was going to kill him. So I encourage you to be vegan and to kill animals. And uh, to be a carnivore and to not kill at the same time. How do you do this? So this is what you get to figure out after you graduate or begin. And then, at another level, the opposite is also true. That life also can't be killed. And, you know, sometimes we don't like to talk about this level because it's easy to slip into dangerous territory. But life gets killed, and also it doesn't. 
It seems to go on. And also, you can't steal anything. You can't steal anything because nobody possesses anything. So what I hope you're interested in at the end of this course is just this mystery level. Which is not a passive level because you still have to take steps and all three levels work simultaneously. And also because you don't know where you end and where you begin. And even though you think you know where you end and where you begin, hopefully this course has shown you that Sometimes it's good to know where you end and another person begins and sometimes it's good to let that fall away. And to be a bodhisattva, you have to know when it's skillful to do one or the other. In the medieval times in Japan, if in a village there were spirits and demons causing harm to the people in the village, or causing harm to the growing of rice or herbs, then they would call a priest in from the local Zen temple. And the priest would come and do a shamanistic ceremony and give precepts to the spirits and to the demons in order to settle them. When I read about that this week, I thought this is what we're graduating into the shamanistic level of the precepts, shamanistic practice of the precepts. When things were not going well, you would turn to the gods and goddesses and you would do a precept ceremony for them. So when we do year seven of this course, this is what we'll work on. Giving precepts to all the energies, um, all the winds that move through us. So one last comment, which is that the precepts are also, because of all this, not about sin. And also, they're not about purity. As it says in the Vegetable Root Sutra, water that is too clean has no fish. And then the next line is, therefore, you should always maintain a measure of grime in your practice. Water that is too clean, or water that is too pure, has no fish. Have you ever seen lakes like this? There's a lot of them in northern Algonquin Park. Crystal clear Caribbean blues. And there's not a living thing in them. <clears throat> From acid rain. So beautiful. And so dead. At the same time. Um, and the second line was, um, therefore, ta-da, therefore, you should always keep a measure of grime in your practice. Grime? Do you, do you know what grime is? Yeah. So, I won't speak again in this course about what you should or shouldn't do.
Thank you for listening. <laughs> I want to switch to talking about the ceremony, but before I do, is there anything I've said that anybody wants to comment on? Anything that needs repeated? Let's talk about graduation. <laughs>